This is the second Sunday of Easter, and every second Sunday of Easter, uh, the gospel that we read is the gospel about doubting Thomas. So most preachers focus on doubt and its significance, and I'm going to say something about it along the way, but I, I really want to preach today on the resurrection because it is fresh in my mind because of Episcopalian 101. And I'm going to share some random things with you about how uh, we might understand the bodily resurrection of Jesus and what's happened in the last 30 or 35 years since I went to seminary uh, in studies uh, about the bodily resurrection, because there's been a sea change uh, with regard to how we think and understand this. Uh, first, though, let me just rehearse. I do this every Sunday in Eastertide, the great 50, the 50 days of Easter. We have a fourfold shape, a template that goes over the liturgy, particularly the biblical readings and the various emphases in the liturgy that uh, are part of this so that they stay with us during the uh, great 50 days and beyond because they're really the predicates for the whole of the Christian year. In the sermon a little bit ago, I talked about uh, this YouTube video, which on one of our media channels is now posted, called Pinterest. So if you want to go to it, you can open the video and, and watch it uh, about uh, N.T. Wright, Jay Harris, and Sean Kelly, the chair of the Department of Philosophy at Harvard. And in the course of that video, uh, Sean Kelly said, my wife's mother grew up in China, and her mother made her memorize, this is his wife's grandmother, made this young woman memorize hundreds of lines of Chinese poetry every day. And when she got to be about 12, she said to her mother, I, you know, I just... I just can't do this anymore. This is too much. It is too burdensome. I cannot see why I must do this. I, it is really becoming hard for me. And her mother said, you don't understand this now. You will not understand this now. But in the future, because of this, one of these lines, when you're in a certain circumstance, one of these lines will come into your head unbidden. And it will directly connect to the, to the circumstances in which you find yourself. And it will assist you in processing and thinking and reflecting about this in terms of the wider great culture that you have come from and how you begin to understand these things in depth. Right? So we're talking in this particular case uh, about what salvation history is all about in Christianity. And in a minute... I'm going to say some things about the bodily resurrection and the way the accounts were written and presented that gave to the early Christians who from the jump preached that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead, were able to call upon these even if they were illiterate, which was most of Jesus' audience and most of the audience in Palestine in the first century. So just hold that thought. The presence of the light of Christ, symbolized by the Paschal candle, the illuminative processes of God at work inside each of us, 
showing us the way and how to uh, reflect more uh, clearly about the, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. The light of Christ as the symbol of the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. And how we understand now that this, this illumination is with us all the time. One of the words for baptism in the early Christian church was fortismus. It means illumination. So in this process, we begin to see that. We read from the Bible about the history of salvation, and you're gonna, we're going to read through most of Easter uh, uh, from the book of Acts for the first reading instead of something from the Old Testament. And we're going to read how the early church appropriated uh, the, the Christian message and how they sought to communicate it to other people in a way that was understandable. And, of course, Pentecost, which will end the great 50 days of Easter, will be the understanding that the preaching of the early church brought uh, universal understanding, symbolized by the people who came out of the upper room and were speaking in such a way that everybody who spoke all the languages that were there understood what they said. Baptism is the entrance for Christians into this family and we receive at our baptism the Holy Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so the energy of baptism is something we celebrate and is part of who we are as Christian people. And finally, it's reaffirmed each week when we receive the Eucharist on Sunday, Sunday to Sunday, month to month, week to week, year to year, we receive the Eucharist, the spiritual food and drink uh, that gives us the strength and the stamina to face the challenges and opportunities in front of us. So we'll remember that, and I'll repeat this ad nauseum as we go through the great 50 days. Uh, when I was in seminary about 35, maybe nearly 40 years ago, um, I would say that 75% of the scholarly community, the New Testament scholars uh, in the West, in the United States and in Europe, uh, did not believe in the empty tomb and did not believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And they did not teach that. And the people that uh, were famous, who were the sort of scholarly underpinning for this view, were probably mainly Germans, German biblical scholars. One of the premier ones was a man named Rudolf Bultmann, who died in 1976, and uh, he is, uh, his learning was massive, and he was almost completely wrong. Rudolf Bultmann was a Lutheran, and most of those scholars were German Lutherans. And German Lutherans have a particular, or Lutherans generally, have a particular outlook about the nature of Christianity. So one of the things that colored their thinking was the idea that Judaism may be a religious tradition, but it's the wrong religious tradition. And so we're going to write narratives. And, and, and scholarly books about Jesus really being a crypto-Hellenist. Paul becomes now a Hellenist. 
We are influenced also by the Enlightenment thinking that uh, it's all been happen happened for us in the late part of the 17th and early part of the 18th century. God is now absent. He's in heaven. And we are now engaged in learning everything and knowing everything. In moral theology, by the way, there's a term that's used for this Enlightenment thinking about morals and ethics. It's called encyclopedia. Right? We may not know this now, but sooner or later we're going to know it. We're going to get it figured out, and we're going to do it. My grandfather thought like that. We're going to be able to find an answer to this. Now, most of the time they were speaking about technology, right? Technology is going to find an answer to this. But in terms of the great questions about what it means to be a human being and how do we understand new life and transformation, they turn out, turn out to be as in the dark as anybody else. In any case, what's happened over the last 35 years, and this isn't universally true, there's still a lot of very skeptical scholars around, and we, we seem to rotate through the ones that have are famous and sell a lot of books. You know, re recent people who are... Who are so the new one uh, that's very popular is a man named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman uh, is a superb biblical scholar. He is extremely competent. He wrote together with Bruce Metzger, the dean of, of American textual criticism, the last edition before Metzger died of the text of the New Testament. And he wrote during that time his PhD thesis, and it was called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, which got put into a popularized version called Misquoting Jesus. That was his first big seller. And since then, he has moved from strength to strength. The interesting thing about him is that he's very complex, like most of us. And so when you speak with him, he will affirm many of the things I'm going to talk briefly about in terms of what people think in the scholarly community about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What I just told you about me being in seminary was what was taught in all of the mainline churches, including the Roman Catholic Church, when I was a seminarian. So now, 35 years out or so, we have this. 75% of the scholarly community, from radical skeptics to very conservative evangelical scholars, 75% of them believe in the bodily resurrection and believe it's supportable by the historical information and data. And 25% now are the make-your-hair-stand-on-end skeptics. So there are a lot of reasons for how this change happened. I just want to say a couple of things, because there's things that influence this outside of interest in, in biblical stuff. And that is, what is the difference between history and interpretation? Because there's a viewpoint that's held by mostly the skeptics that would say, you can't ever get any true story here because everybody has written it from trying to advance their point of view. Right? So the idea that what's written in the Gospels is uh, interpretive fiction. 
It's, it's written by people who are trying to, to, to do this. What the historians have discovered, though, now, the ancient historians, is that the period between Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the first preaching of Jesus as risen is within one year after this happened. And before that, many of these scholars were saying it took a lot of time for these stories to develop. And so as the church began to do this, they were writing uh, many of them from their particular point of view to advance it. Uh, E.P. Sanders, who's on the more skeptical side, who I've, his books are not for popular consumption necessarily. Um, but here's what he says. I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. Many of the people in these lists were to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord and several of them would die for their cause. Moreover, a calculated deception should have produced great uniformity. Instead, there seemed to have been competitors. I saw him first. No, I did. Paul's tradition that 500 people saw Jesus at the same time has led some people to suggest that Jesus' followers suffered mass hysteria. But mass hysteria does not explain the other traditions. He also says, it looks as if they, the biblical writers, were trying very hard to say something for which they themselves knew that they did not possess adequate language. So they had a couple of things that they were trying to do. They were trying to explain this. If you read it in the original, you'll see that the, the, the stories about Jesus being bodily raised use different words than being resuscitated, resuscitating a corpse. So when we read the story of the raising of Lazarus, we read, we read it using certain words. And when we read the story of Jesus being bodily raised, the language is different. There are special words that, that are used to refer to this particular event. So history can be understood as um, repeating what it is that happened, or it can be understood as writing about what has happened. And all historians, whether you're a radical skeptic or very conservative, do something in historical study which is called select and arrange. Did you say select and arrange? Select and arrange. All right? So, I go up to Canada to see my grandson Lucas, and I come back down and I talk to people about what I did. I don't tell them everything. It would bore them to death. I got out at the Capilano, you know, Best Western Inn, put my key in the door, went in, did all that. I select and arrange. And select and arrange has something to do with the process of history, not interpretation. They're fused. They're together. And many people have had a lot of trouble understanding the relationship between that. Let me give you an example from 2 Samuel. Two messengers come to King David. One of them says, I saw a huge mound, but I did not know what it was. And the next messenger says, may all the king's enemies be like that young man. Remember, the old thing was, you know, if you're the messenger, you might get shot, right? So here are two guys 
who don't specifically say that Absalom has been killed. They say, I saw the mound, and the other one says, may all the king's enemies be like that young man. So David has to do what? He has to put two and two together. History and interpretation of what's going on in this regard. So what happens when we get to this is that we are going to be able to discover, and that's why there's been this change. And here's what I mean about a change. Let's say we do an alphabetical thing where we go A, B, C, D, E. And E are the most skeptical, and A are the most conservative. The question we're asking today is, why did the Ds and the Es move over to C or C minus? in their understanding of this? What caused them to be able to do this in some way? And part of it has to do with the, the advance in the, in the study, in the history. So they will only affirm those things that are in the literature that has been most critically received. Not the stuff that, you know, maybe conservatives accept or do, but the, what the general consensus of the scholarly community is about these things. So here's an example, and then I'll stop. Uh, in the Bible, there are 13 pieces of writing that are attributed to the Apostle Paul. Probably six or seven are authentic, authentically Pauline. So with the, with the D's and the E's, they'll discuss the description of resurrection from those critically ascertained books. They're not going to do it with, you know, First and Second Timothy or, you know, those books that are doubtful, Titus. But they are going to do it for First Corinthians. So what do we have? We have First Corinthians 15, which is the earliest account of G uh, Paul speaking about Jesus being bodily raised. And now the research, which is meticulous, that's been done says, say that Paul received this information. He wrote this epistle probably around 48 AD, but he received it around 35. And Jesus was crucified in 33. So you see how the tradition began from the jump. And it was communicated to Paul early because he knew all the people in the circle who were the eyewitnesses and he took that and when he wrote his epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 15 he discusses this so in the scholarly community that's how they begin to develop some understanding of well you know this might have legs at least we'll go from, from E to C or C minus so that's how come there's been the change in some way. Uh, let me say something briefly about John's gospel. We have the story of, of uh, Thomas. He wasn't there when Jesus first was there. And the other apostles uh, are with Jesus and they touch him and they see him and they listen to him. And then he comes again and Thomas is there this time and he does what he said he had to do in order to receive proof. Now, the important thing about that for people talking about their doubts 
is that Jesus mildly rebukes Thomas and he said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have come to believe. And so the Savior is speaking to the apostles about the processes of coming to faith and that the eyewitness testimony or the physical affirmation of this for people is not the only thing because after it, you've got to do something. You've got to put it in your hands and begin to see that we're being pointed in a direction. So most of the time in the Episcopal Church, preachers say, well, it's okay to have, be doubting, to have doubts, and doubt's good, and we should do that. All that's true, but we never really talk about the fact that most people don't understand what the opposite of doubt is. And the opposite of doubt is not faith. It's certainty. And so seeking to find certainty... I think we'll probably always get people in, in a jam. Remember I said earlier, none of these resurrection accounts agree with each other. They all differ. The only constant, by the way, in the resurrection narratives are the women. And that is an affirmation of the authenticity of what is being said there because they would not have been mentioned in, in first century Palestine unless it was significant as the first eyewitnesses. In fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Mary Magdalene is referred to as the Apostle to the Apostles. Isn't it interesting how this has gotten lost over time right, in, in, in the church's life? But that's the way in which you see the actual disagreement in these accounts, as Ed Sanders said, uh, brings us to some idea of um, their veracity. So I guess that the, the, the lesson would be uh, embrace your doubts. Uh, see if the bodily resurrection is um, use, useful to you. I think, I think it is. And uh, that's in one sense also what this Sunday affirms. Amen. Amen.